As many of you know, I'm not from around here. I didn't grow up here, but I love being here. One of the things you don't know about me is I learned to drive in the hills of East Tennessee. I actually grew up in the deep south in South Carolina, but by high school, we had moved to East Tennessee, and that's where I learned to drive. I learned to drive a stick shift in the hills of East Tennessee, which actually, if you've never been there, they're a lot like the Cascades without the volcanoes. You know, the, the lower part of the... That's, that's a lot what East Tennessee is like. That's where I, I learned to drive. That, it's, a, it's a place where even the straight roads, straight roads are curvy. There there aren't any straight roads. Now, I don't know what the rules are for road signs marking a sharp curve. I'm sure there are actual rules and regulations. What I know is that where I grew up, you ignore most of those signs, right? Because they're everywhere, and it's just part of driving. But you get beyond the foothills where, where I was learning to drive, and you get on up into the mountains... And it's different. All of a sudden, you'll be driving along, and you've seen lots of those curvy road, curvy road, curvy road signs. And then all of a sudden, bam, 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 bam. You know, arrow after arrow after arrow after arrow after arrow saying a sharp turn is coming. And they mean it. They mean it. You better slow down at that point. Or you're likely to end up in a ditch or over a cliff. I think life is a bit like that. There are warnings everywhere and all the time. Don't eat this. Do eat that. Don't wear this. Don't breathe that. You know, it's it's constant. Warnings everywhere. And after a while, if you're at all like me, you stop paying attention to them. You, you, You start ignoring them. Because that's life, right? Life has risks. Life is meant for living, not ducking. But every now and then, a warning pops up in life that you better pay attention to. It stops you short. Often they come in a doctor's office. Or they come in the form of a conversation with your spouse or or one of your kids. And at that point, the difference between a life that veers off the road and into a ditch or over a cliff and a life that manages the curve is often whether or not we recognize the seriousness of the warning and take heed to it. This summer, we're working our way through the book of Proverbs. It's an ancient book of wisdom written by Solomon and quite a few others. The purpose of the book is to instruct us in the art of living well in God's world. Now, last week, we looked at the prologue, the first seven verses of chapter one, and and we saw that wisdom begins by rightly ordering our own lives toward God. It begins with the fear of the Lord. This week, we start the introduction to the book. Last week was the prologue. Now, we're going to dive into the introduction of the book, and the introduction of the book actually begins with a couple of warnings. But it's up to you to decide. Are these warnings just a couple more in a long list of warnings that, frankly, are safe to ignore? Or should you watch out? Should you watch out? Turn with me, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 1. 
verse 8. Proverbs 1, verse 8. I think that's found on page 984. Uh, I didn't actually have a chance to confirm that, but it's, it's printed on the inside of your bulletin, page 984. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, and the Bible's provided, page 984. Listen as I read just the first two verses of our, of our passage, verses 8 and 9. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They will be a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. Now, those two verses right there, and the reason I'm reading them separately, those two verses really serve as the opening to the entire introduction. The introduction begins here and goes all the way to the end of chapter 9. We're just going to look at chapter 1 today. The voice at this point shifts from those first seven verses where, where, the, where either Solomon or, or the person who finally put the book together uh, int- introduces by way of prologue. The voice now shifts to the father, a father instructing his son. And it's endearing. I mean, you hear it there. It's endearing. It's full of love, but it's serious and it's earnest. Now, last week I mentioned that the art of wisdom like any art that's skillfully practiced, produces beauty. That's what art does. And right here, the father makes that explicit. He says, if you listen to your parents' instruction, not just chapter one in the warnings, but the whole body of the book, and if you put it into practice, son, it's going to make your life beautiful. Not pretty. The father's not talking about eye candy here. No, he, he refers to the garland This garland was the victor's wreath that conveyed real prestige in that society. He compares it to to a necklace, a necklace that was of great worth and value, that that conveyed wealth and status. You you see what the Father's doing here? He's drawing this analogy, and he's he's, he's saying that wisdom is going to give you a beauty that is way more than skin deep. Wisdom is going to give you a beauty that commands respect and admiration. Now, what young man or young woman doesn't want that? To be respected, to be be admired as a beautiful person, not because of what they look like, but because of who they are. It's what the Father says wisdom will give. And if I could just speak directly to young people, adolescents, young adults. That kind of beauty that the Father's talking about here, it doesn't come in a cream and it doesn't come at the gym. It comes through parents. It comes through parents. That's what's going on right here at the beginning of the book of Proverbs. Parents are God's ordinary means of grace in your life to make you beautiful. I understand that you don't normally think of your parents that way. I get it. I, I didn't either. But, but in God's economy, in God's wisdom, this is the way he set it up. God has given you parents to be the ordinary means by which wisdom is transferred to you and you become a beautiful person. But this grace that comes through parents, it's, it's, it's not magic. It's, it's not like just automatic. No, you've got you've to listen to them. You see how he starts, listen, my son. And let's just be honest, that's hard. It is hard to listen to your parents. I assure you, young people, 
that all of the older people in the congregation who still have parents living, they find it hard too. It actually probably doesn't get easier. But it is so important. Why doesn't it get easier? Everything in the world is screaming at you right now, particularly if you are an adolescent, a young adult. Everything is screaming at you, don't listen to your parents. There's a better way. There's more fun some other way. There are more opportunities. They just want to keep you down. That's what the world screams at you. Why does it do that? I was thinking about this this week because, you know, the, the world is very convinced in, in the, 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 the doctrine, really, the, the, the spiritual doctrine of evolution. Now, this is not going to be a sermon on evolution. But I was thinking about this. And when you think about, you know, evolutionary process, you look at the rest of the animal world that we supposedly came from, everywhere else in the animal world, everywhere else in the animal world where parents are involved with their young the survival of the young is absolutely hanging on the young's willingness to receive instruction from the parents, to, to, to learn the lessons that the parents have to teach. And right across the animal world, that's what young animals do. They adopt the lessons that their parents teach them. If they don't, they die. Well, if we're just the product of evolution, why don't we do that? It seems like a pretty good process, right? It seems like that would really, you know, promote the survival of the species. See, I don't think evolution, I don't think a naturalistic worldview can explain why unique out of the entire animal world, human young want to define themselves by their rejection of their parents, by, by, their, by their decision to not submit, to not accept what their parents have to teach them. I don't think evolution can explain that. I think the fall can, though. I think the fact that we were created in the image of God and we decided first to rebel against Him very much explains why, having rejected ultimate authority, God's authority, we are now quite quick. In fact, it shows up first by rejecting our parents' authority. Young adults... Teenagers, we are born rebels against God's wisdom, and it shows up first toward our parents. We don't live in a neutral universe. We live in a morally charged universe, a universe that is electric with right and wrong. And there is an enemy that wants nothing more than your destruction. And a quick way, to your destruction, is convincing you that the worst thing to do would be to listen to your parents. That's true whether your parents are Christian or not. It is especially true if your parents are godly, if your parents know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, this is why the wise father, who wants his son to have a beautiful life. He doesn't want his son to have a downtrodden life. He's not out to spoil all his son's fun. He wants his son to have a beautiful life, and that is why he begins the whole book with a couple of warnings. There are two in our passage, and the first one is this. Here's the first warning. Watch out 
lest you lose your life. Watch out, lest you lose your life. Look with me in verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let's lie and wait for someone's blood. Let's waylay some harmless soul. Let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. We'll get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us. We'll share a common purse. My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths. For their feet rush into sin. They are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net in full view of all the birds. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They waylay only themselves. Such is the end of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the lives of those who get it. When you boil it down, the father's warning right off the bat is, son, don't join a gang. And that's, that's basically what he's saying. Don't join a gang. And if we lived in the barrios of East L.A. or on the south side of Chicago or maybe even certain neighborhoods here in Portland, that might be a very direct and relevant message for some of us today. And it might be a very direct and relevant message for some of you today. I don't know all of your situations. But I think a lot of you are sitting here at this point saying, yeah, I, I wasn't thinking not even remotely, about joining a gang today. I wasn't even tempted to go rob somebody, much less murder them. And so you sit here and you read this and you think, what what does this have to do with me here in Portland? Relatively middle-class educated people. Well, frankly, a lot. It has a lot to do with us. Because as verse 19 makes clear, this is not just about organized crime. Such is the end of all who go after ill-gotten gain. You see, this is about resisting the world's temptation to define our lives by what we possess and then to use whatever means we need to get what we possess, even if it means destroying other people along the way. He's very much talking about peer pressure here and where it leads. And where the peer pressure of the world leads is death. The language is shocking, beginning there in in verse 13. He's, He's quoting the gang, but he's not actually quoting them. He's not actually giving us the recruitment pitch of the gang leader. No, if we were to hear the recruitment pitch of the gang leader, it would be, you know, all about rewards, not the costs, about the glory, not the gore. No, what, what, he's, what he's doing here is he's, he's peeling away the, the, the outward attractive message. He's showing us what lies underneath the invitation to go along with the world. And what lies underneath is innocent victims destroyed. But the father is skillful because even though he's giving us this unvarnished look at, at the gang's appeal, he lets us feel the appeal. We feel how attractive this is, even in all of its shocking gore, easy money, brotherhood, a common lot, status. Friends, here's the enticement at its heart. Join with us, and you've got it made. 
All you have to do is be willing to step on a few people to get there. Join with us and you've got it made. All you've got to be willing to do is step on a few people to get there. This is why I love Proverbs. Proverbs is about the real world, straight up and undiluted. From bullies at school who gang up on a kid to increase their stature, to the Wall Street insiders who game the system for their own profit and the loss of their clients, to racists who hold others down because of the color of their skin so that they can feel better about themselves, to the neighborhood gossip who needs things to be wrong about other people so that they can feel good about themselves. Friends, the world is full of pressure. Pressure to throw in our lot and to join in destroying others so that we can raise ourselves. There's maybe the most common ill-gotten gain, right? Feeling better about myself. Feeling safer. You got to understand, no one wakes up one morning and says, I know, I'm going to be a bully. Or I'm going to be a racist. Or I'm going to be a gossip. No, we don't wake up saying that. What we do is we wake up saying, I need to feel safer. I need to feel more secure. I need to feel better about myself. And that need is more valuable than anything else. And so what gradually begins to happen is that I begin to use people to get what I need. Here's how you get to the shocking violence of verse 16. Feet that rush into sin, swift to shed blood. All it takes, whether the violence is real and blood is actually shed, or the violence is emotional and psychological and social, all it takes is a recalculation in our minds of the value of things versus people. What about you this morning? Do you use people to get things? Those things might be psychological things. They might be emotional things. They might be material things. But do you use people to get things? Is your motto this morning, to the victor belong the spoils? If they couldn't keep it, and I can get it, then they didn't deserve it, and I do. Or do you use things in order to love people? Is your motto, even the Son of Man came not to be served? but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Which of those two mottos sounds like wisdom to you? Which motto are you living by? What's interesting to me as we look at this section is that the father's case against going with the crowd is not, at least not explicitly, that murder is wrong. Oh, he believes murder is wrong, but he he really leaves that judgment implicit throughout this section. What he says explicitly is that it's stupid. Look at verse 17. 
How useless to spread a net in full view of all the birds. If you're going to catch a bird, you have to hide the net for two reasons. Birds have wings, and birds have sense. They have the good sense to avoid the net that they see. But not people. Not people who destroy others to get what they need. All they see is what they need. All they see is the bait, the loot. What they fail to see and avoid is the trap. And the irony is it's a trap that they've laid for themselves. Verse 18, these men lie in wait for their own blood. They waylay only themselves. Friends, here's the principle of this first section. We live in a moral universe in which deeds bring appropriate consequences. It's not just that it's wrong to destroy someone else's life. It is wrong. But it's that in doing so, you're going to destroy your own life as well. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 6. A man reaps what he sows. It's like a law of the universe. It is a built-in principle. God will not be mocked. Justice will be served often in this life, but not always. Oh, but always in the next. And so the father's warning here is super practical. Son, if you value your own life, you won't set foot on their path. You won't go along with the crowd. Instead, you'll be like the smart bird and take wing and fly away before the net is thrown. The question, you see, is not if, but when. We're enticed. When? Our our NIV Bibles, if you're reading along with me in the NIV, it's it's translated if sinners entice you. But but in fact, it's closer to when. It's it's a given that the enticement is coming. The question is, what are you going to do when it comes? Wisdom's warning is, don't even take the first step. Don't even put the first foot on that path. Because once on that path, it is hard to get off. Alexander Pope, the great English poet, wrote, Vice is a monster of so frightful mane as to be hated needs but to be seen. But seen too oft, too familiar that face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. That's the way of it. I don't know all of you personally. I don't know what's going on in your life. You know, you know, if you are honest with yourself, you know what entices you. Do you know where the first steps are taken? That's the place to resist. Not not when when the enticement has become a full-blown temptation and you're, you're steering the vice right in the face. No, 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 no. The place to take the decisive step, the decisive rejection is way back over here before you even put the first step on that path. You know how this works. Some of you here today struggle with internet pornography. Some of you here today struggle with gossip. Some of you, maybe even in your families, you struggle with bickering. 
it never starts right there, does it? It always starts way back here. A thought that you indulge. Uh, uh, a fear that you dwell on rather than taking to, to the Lord. And slowly but surely then, first step, second step, third step, and finally, you're viewing those pages that you shouldn't view. You're gossiping about that person, and you, should, you know you shouldn't be, but you need to. You're in that stupid argument yet again with your siblings. Understand that by the time you get there, it's too late. If you're going to repent, if you're going to stay off that path, you've got to figure out what step one is. And don't even take it. Young people, this is warning us here to beware of short-term thinking that promises that if you go with the crowd, you'll get ahead. You know, it often works. If you go with the crowd, you actually will get ahead. But it's costly. It is costly. The way of sin is enticing. It, it is attractive. Wisdom, the Bible in general, never denies that. It does not pretend that there's nothing to be gained. What it confronts us with is, is the, the deception that we're never going to have to pay the piper, that we're never going to have to deal with the consequences of our actions. So, so young adults, teenagers, how, how do you battle the temptation of, of short-term thinking? What you need to do is, is replace it with long-term thinking. You need to be thinking often of the long-term. Young people aren't very good at that because you feel like you're going to live forever. You feel like you've got all sorts of opportunities. There'll be time later to deal with that sort of stuff. No, 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 no. You need to start thinking about it now. You need to begin that habit of living your life now in light of the long term. As Jim Elliott observed, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, long-term thinking isn't as exciting, but it's way more profitable. And how do we get there? Well, one thing you can do right off the bat is join a church. Don't join a gang, join a church, right? A church is a community of people, including your peers, that are all about encouraging you to stay on the path that leads to beauty rather than the path that leads to losing your life. Be in the Word. Read the Bible. The Bible is constantly reminding us of the end. It's why I love it when we sing songs about heaven here. It reminds me that I need to be about long-term thinking. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to understand that this is crucial if you're going to understand Christianity. We live in a moral universe. God made us to be like Him, wise, just, loving, gracious, good. It is where all of the best impulses in you come from, it is where all of your best hopes and longings find their source. But the reality is we have all chosen to go our own way. We've decided to pursue in one way or another our own gain at the expense of others, living as if there is no God who will hold us accountable at the end. But, but the fact is God built this moral universe and life itself begins to hold us accountable. Right? When we begin to leave God's ways, life begins to hurt. 
There are bumps. There are bruises. There are pains. God designed it that way. He designed it that way so that the consequences, the natural consequences of this life would warn us of the ultimate consequences that still await. And the reality is, you don't have to be a Christian to become wise in this life. You can learn from your mistakes. You can get pretty good at living in this world. You can get better at life along the way. I get that. But at the end, God will judge. And how will you avoid the consequences of death that are due for the sum total of your life? God does not accept us because we got better at living. It's not a grade on the curve. And it's that question that leads us to the second warning. The second warning, watch out lest you miss your chance. Watch out lest you miss your chance. Look at verse 20. Wisdom calls aloud in the streets. She raises her voice in the public squares. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. In the gateways of the city, she makes her speech. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? If you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. But since you rejected me when I called and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. When calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you. Then they will call out to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. The first section, the first warning is a warning of judgment to come. The second section, the second warning is that there will be no second chance if you miss the signpost. We're introduced here to to Lady Wisdom. She's going to show up a lot. We're We're going to spend more time with her. And it turns out that Lady Wisdom is a street preacher. She is loud. She is noisy. She is bold. She is everywhere. No one on the last day is going to be able to say, and when I say no one, I mean no one. No one in the entire world, not in the deepest, darkest jungles of South America or Africa, not in the highest penthouse of Manhattan. No one is going to be able to say, I didn't know. I didn't know. Because wisdom has been preaching everywhere. Loudly and clearly. Now, her message is a message that is aimed particularly at the simple. 
You see there at the top of verse 22, how long will you simple ones love your ways? And then she introduces us to two other people, but it's, it's not as clear in our English trans- translations. She's actually not directly addressing them. She's addressing the simple. She's pointing out these other two groups. And, she, she's, and, and this is important because the simple are not the same as the fool. The fool is the one who obstinately rejects the wisdom that is presented. The mocker, the mocker is the troublemaker who, like the fool, rejects wisdom but actually wants to bring a lot of people along with him. Now, the simple are the uncommitted, the ones that are keeping their options open, but always tending to drift toward folly. They're the ones that she's addressing, and she calls them there in verse 24, well, 22 and in, in verse 24, that the call is to respond, to, to, to turn, literally to repent of their simple ways. And then she warns them. She warns them that if they don't, their end, the end of the simple, will be no different than the end of the fool and the mocker. She really lays it out for them beginning there uh, in, verse, in verse 23. If they would repent, if they would turn, if they would listen to her, then she would pour out her heart and her thoughts to them, literally her spirit and her words. The, the language of verse 23 is really the language of the new birth. It's the language of being made alive with the very wisdom of God, His spirit poured out on us, His words written on our hearts. This is what happens when we turn to wisdom. God makes us alive with His wisdom. Then in verse 24 and on down, she looks out into the future. She warns them of what will happen if they don't repent. What will happen is disaster. Disaster is going to come, like a terrible storm at sea or a terrible uh, uh, tornado sweeping through a valley. Without wisdom, they are going to sail their ship directly into the storm of life and ultimately directly into the storm of God's judgment, and she promises them it will overwhelm you. It will be a day of deepest distress. And on that day, she says, the simple will cry out for a second chance. They're going to call out for for wisdom. They're going to look for her. They're going to want a way out of the storm, even though, as the previous section just made really clear, it's a storm of their own making. But what is going to happen on that day? Wisdom is not going to be listening to them. On that day, the day that the storm hits, wisdom will not answer their prayer. Verse 28 is chilling. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but will not find me. Charles Bridges, an English pastor who wrote a marvelous devotional work on, uh, on the book of Proverbs, Back in the uh, 19th century, he, he observed on this verse, prayer, once omnipotent, will then be powerless. Prayer, which right now is omnipotent, it moves God, will then be powerless. Oh, friends, the saving voice of wisdom can be forfeited through rejection. And then out of the silence of heaven, 
all that will come is laughter. Wisdom will laugh on that day. Not a heartless laugh at their disaster, but a triumphant laugh at the victory of right over wrong. Friends, truth has has a harsh edge to it, and wisdom does not dull it. Since they did not choose to fear the Lord, verse 29, they will eat the fruit of their ways, verse 31. The Bible understood that we are what we eat long before modern dietitians. And it gave moral force to that truth. Sow the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. You see, the the universe has kind of like a boomerang principle built into it. It's the way God made it. They would not hear God in the day of mercy. In the day of vengeance, God will not hear them. They laughed at his threatenings in life. In death, he will mock their cry. God will have the last laugh. A terrible laugh of judgment and of justice. And we recoil at that. But I think we understand it. It is terrible, and we feel it. It is terrible when folly and wickedness and evil prevail. And so when we go to the movies this summer, to the latest superhero movie, we will laugh and cheer as the superhero stomps down the wicked villain. We get it. It's the same here. Wisdom laughs in victory. When this upside-down world is put right, when wisdom overturns folly, when righteousness ousts wickedness, when knowledge overcomes ignorance, when humility topples pride, when life itself swallows up death, wisdom laughs in joyous victory. And the simple are warned of this day. They are warned of this fearsome, victorious laughter that is coming, and wisdom pleads, wisdom urges Turn before it is too late. Friends, make no mistake. Scripture teaches that judgment is final. There are no second chances. Maybe you read some C.S. Lewis book somewhere and and thought that, oh, it's okay for Christians to believe that, uh, that, that you get a second chance after death. If you've read The Great Divorce, that's actually a misreading of the book. It's not what C.S. Lewis was teaching. But regardless of where you may have come across the idea, it's not what Scripture teaches. The entire book of Proverbs hangs on this truth that death is final and there is a final judgment. Without it, choices now, they're merely provisional. They don't really matter. Life is denied its true dignity since since nothing of eternal consequence hangs on what we do here and now. Fools are confirmed in the wisdom of of treating life as if it doesn't matter. And the wise are confirmed as fools for denying themselves the pleasures that this world has to offer. Bruce Waltke, a great commentator in the book of Proverbs, observes, people deny the doctrine of final judgment 
because they do not want to give this life such dignity that decisions now affect an eternal future in a decisive and definitive way. But friends, that's not God. God very much gives us that dignity. Our choices today matter, and they matter for eternity. Which is why verse 33 is so glorious. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. If verse 32 assures us that our folly will result in our judgment, verse 33 promises us that our repentance will result in salvation. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God that we must listen to. Jesus declares, come unto me and I will give you rest. I will give you ease. I will give you safety. How can Jesus do that? If if the principles of the universe are, as the book of Proverbs laid out, and as I've just explained, how can Jesus do that? Well, he can do it. Because though we may have sown the wind in our rebellion, he has reaped the whirlwind for us on the cross. The boomerang of justice that deserved to hit us, hit him instead as he gave his life as a substitute for all who would repent, for all who would, who would listen to his wisdom, for all who would put, her, put their faith in him. This is how he described it in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. The storm came, and what happened? Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock, and that rock is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the wisdom of God that puts us at ease without fear of harm, because the harm has already fallen on him, and he's absorbed it. And he has risen from the dead, never to die again. Life, swallowing up death in victory. Wisdom, overturning folly. If you are in Christ. So friend, do not miss the warning here. Do not delay turning to the wisdom that is Jesus Christ. Do not delay because none of us know when we've passed that point of no return. Folly in this life brings calamitous consequences in this life. But what we must see is that those consequences are just warning signs of God's eternal judgment that is just ahead. Friends, we don't know when the final day of calamity will fall. We don't know when wisdom has made her last appeal. Charles Bridges asked of these verses, does it not solemnly tell us that the day of grace has its limits? That there is a knock that will be the last knock. That a sinner may be lost on this side of hell. Indeed, that's exactly what these verses warn us of. But friend, do not despair. Do not despair that it is already too late for you. It may be that you have been foolish. It may be that you are simple. It may be that your choices have brought disaster into your life already. There is no promise that God will take away the earthly consequences of our foolishness, but there is the promise of verse 33, 
There is the promise that if you can hear the sound of my voice today, if you accept God's rebuke, if you listen to his call, if you turn to Christ today, who is the wisdom of God for salvation, you, starting today, can live in safety, can live in ease, can live without fear of harm. Friends, the warnings are plain. Boom, 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 boom. Will you ignore them? Take your chances on the curves ahead. Or will you heed them and live? Watch out. The choice is yours. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would wake us up. We pray that the warnings that are so clear that you have left for us throughout this created world, scattered all across our lives, we pray that those warnings which we have grown dull to, that we have learned to ignore, that we have rationalized and explained away, Father, we pray that you would wake us up, that we would see them for what they are, and that we would take heed that we would turn, turn from our foolishness, turn to Christ and his wisdom, and so find safety. Father, we pray for, for that even for us as Christians, as we have many different ways allowed foolishness to creep into our lives. Oh, Lord, may we see your warning signs. May we begin to live not for short-term gain, but for the long-term safety that is found in Christ. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.